welcome back to Then Again, the podcast of the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Marie Bartlett, the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here. And today I have with me Annalise Meck, and she is a public historian, a historical interpreter, a historical costumer, and you might know her on Instagram as The Sophisticate. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so much looking forward to our conversation. Yay! So today we are going to talk all about living history, working in the museum field, and how does one get started in doing that? So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started working in museums? I've always been a museum goer. Our family always had the season passes to local cultural institutions around us, making children's museums and science museums and, of course, history museums. In fact, most of my memories of family vacations include visiting museums like the Smithsonian's and presidential homes and making Mount Vernon and Monticello. But as far as how I ended up working at a museum, I started at Genesee Country Village Museum as a costuming intern the summer after high school. Um, I worked in their costume shop and shadowed craftspeople who taught me about spinning and weaving, dyeing, and flax processing. And I really credit that internship for putting me on the path for a museums as a career. In fact, it was that year that I started blogging as the young sophisticate, now the sophisticate, uh, to document all that I was learning and sewing. And from there, I became a historical interpreter, went to Kent State University for costumes and textiles. And now I'm back full circle at the museum where I started almost a decade ago. That is amazing. Also, Kent State has an amazing fashion museum that I want to go visit one day, but I've been definitely taking advantage of all of their YouTube videos and um, online inventory so that I, I can only imagine getting to go and like study there full time. It was fantastic because they have rotating exhibits and every semester their fashion timeline um, actually rotates a lot of the pieces so you can see you know the, the timeline of history and they do have a digitized collection as well. I am I'm going to have to dive even more into their digitized collection because I, I have that, that is like one of my dream museums to go to. <laughs> so you told us a little bit how you started into museum. Can you start talking us through about some of your different positions in the museum and what your current role at your current museum is? Sure. So I, as I said, started as a costuming intern. Then I applied to become a historical interpreter. And I did that for um, actually the whole of the time. I still interpret any chance I get. Then I was the office assistant for the interpretation department then um, manager of community lifeways, which was an interpretation kind of program management position. And currently, I have the honor of being GCVM's first associate director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's so cool because you can really see how you have, you know, worked in so many different facets of the museum and kind of grown through different positions within the museum. Can you tell us what some of your primary responsibilities were for each of those roles? Sure. So for costuming intern, um, as I mentioned, I mostly worked in the costume shop and I did a lot of shadowing with craftspeople. And then as a historic interpreter, I was one of the folks out in a costume doing third person interpretation, telling people about the history and surroundings, of course, clothing um, of the 19th century. Then as an um, office assistant, um, it was a lot of kind of inventories, training, you know, just anything that interpretation leads at the time and managers and senior director needed. That was a lot of fun because there's a lot of flexibility in that position. And then as a manager of interpretive programs, it was a lot of, you know, overseeing and managing of programs and about 90 historical interpreters and volunteers and all the activities that happen within select buildings from historic dining programs to textile arts programs 
and just the day-to-day activities and special events, kind of themed weekends and themed programs. And um, it was a lot of fun to learn alongside all these very talented historic interpreters and also to help grow them, grow the programs. That sounds so cool. I think there was one time I was visiting Genesee County Village and Museum. It was the first time I met you in person. And I wasn't able to go to the program because we were visiting like on a weekday. But you're like, oh my gosh, come back this weekend if you can, because we have a chocolate program. Oh, yes. So there's a lot of themed programs, anything from chocolate to sometimes we've done color theme weeks, like a a yellow week, a red week, um, which is always great for the historic textile folks because they can always dye all these fun colors and sometimes get to dye colors that they don't usually um, just to, to fit these fun themes. So if we are doing like a blue week, Mm-hmm. What what besides like dyeing fabric and talking about like the color and where your color comes from, what what else do you do during like a, a blue day or week? Blue theme week. Um, I'm not sure that I've been around for a blue okay. theme week yet, <laughs> but if they were to have one, I'm sure they could talk about everything from some of the historic wallpapers and historic paints. Use a lot of blue. Hosmer's in. Um, has a really bright blue called Saxon blue that they could talk about the invention of that. Actually, the inventor was going for a red, interestingly enough, ended up with this beautiful blue color. We could talk about Prussian blue, which is another 19th century pigment. Of course, they can dye with indigo, the, the magic dye. So there's a lot of opportunities you know, in color, of course, but I'm sure they can look at different social ties as, as well. Blue stockings is what comes to mind. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you have like, you think a favorite program that you got to work on or create while while in that role? Sure. I certainly loved historic dining. I did a lot of programs there. Specifically, I wanted to have a coffee house. And the coffee house program actually was run out of Hosmer's Inn. So Hosmer's Inn did a lot of things like afternoon teas and historic dinners. And this coffee house program was kind of a daily program that they could do on special event weekends where people could come into the inn and order um, all kinds of specialty historic drinks, things like American Heritage chocolate, coffees, teas, even shrubs, which is certainly a 19th century kind of drinking vinegar that was actually really popular in lemonade and all kinds of things. Um, well, you know, the, these themed 19th century drinks also could have some sort of like programmatic tie. So like for making music weekend, we had live music and they actually laid a stage and we had cloggers do two performances and it was really popular, you know, inside and outside, depending on the weather. Oh, that sounds so cool. I've gotten to visit the Genesee County Village Museum twice now, and I keep wanting to go back because all of your programs are just so amazing and it's just uh, such a neat place just in general to go and see. So we've touched on this a little bit, but can you just kind of explain to us a little bit more about what type of museum Genesee County Village Museum is? Because, you know, there's art museums, natural history museums, history museums, but history museums have a lot of different routes that they can go while interpreting history or preserving artifacts. So can you tell us a little bit more about what makes your museum unique? So Genesee Country Village and Museum is actually what is called an open-air living history museum. And I like to think it's the closest we're going to get to actual time travel. Uh, but, but basically, living history museums offer these fully immersive experiences with history. So the idea is to engage all of the senses from smelling and even tasting what's cooking in a historic kitchen to you know hearing things like the clang of metal on metal in a blacksmith's forge and seeing the sights and activities in this carefully recreated historical village. So we are actually the third largest living history museum in the country. 
We have 68 structures uh, in a working village that portray the change in time and, and technology between 1790 to about 1920. But where we specialize is daily life. So it's the farms, the houses, businesses, and working trades. And uh, these are completely furnished and then staffed with costume interpreters who interact with the public and tell them about the, the, the family stories, the collection items, and life in that time period. I will say we also have a large historic costume collection, which I know you've seen. It's housed in our John L. Whaley Art Gallery, as well as the Nature Center, and miles and miles of trails on 600 acres. I didn't realize that it was that big, like 600 acres big, because you know, when you pull up, you see the whole open air museum and it's, of course, it feels so large and grand. And then there's also the galleries. I didn't realize there were that many nature trails. <laughs> yes, there are certainly a lot of nature trails. We even have ponds and we go all the way up to Owaka Creek. So there is a lot of land there and a lot of, you know, focus on the natural environment uh, is a big component of, of our mission. Wow, that's amazing. You're like a natural history museum, a nature preserve, a gallery, a living history museum, all in one. Yes, one-stop shop. (laughs) So could you share some of your more memorable or unique experiences that you've had while working in a museum or just um, in public history in general? Because I know you also do different, um, not just at Genesee County Village Museum, but you also do programs at other historic sites and reenactments as well. Sure. You know, asking about memorable experiences is kind of like asking people what their favorite book is. <laughs> There's just, there are so many experiences that it's, it's difficult to, to know where to start. If you don't but, have to, you know, we, we are, we're willing to hear several. <laughs> well, um, I think overall, the idea for me is that the, the most rewarding part about working for museums is being able to inspire, you know, the next generation of hopefully museum workers. Uh, so I can share an example from this past year. I used to teach a fashion fun summer camp, maybe about like 10 years back now. Um, and it was this week-long camp for kiddos, maybe ages 8 to 10. But this year when I was at the Maple Sugar Festival, I was making candles or tallow dips. Uh, and one of the young guests remembered that I was her teacher for fashion camp. We got to talking and she was telling me about how she wanted to work at a, at a museum And I thought it was really sweet that she remembered me. And I said something along the lines of, you know, our museum volunteers start at age 16. You know, are you 16 yet? Uh, Come to find out she's like 19 years old. So I felt old. But now when I see her around the site, because she's actually employed at Genesee Country Village Museum now, uh, she likes to tell people that story. And for me, it's a really special moment, kind of a full circle moment. And um, I think that's the the biggest takeaway I have from working in a museum. And what I want frontline staff to, to know is that, we can have such an impact on the visitors that we, we talk with. And you never know who you're talking to, especially kiddos, and if they'll grow up to be that next generation of museum workers. Yeah, that's absolutely the dream. You know, whenever we have field trips or homeschool days or any like family days, like, you know, that's the whole thing is try to, to reach people, to inspire them, especially when we do have the, our young audiences and to have one that, you know, and I'm sure, you know, there's always like the one that will actually come back and like maybe tell you. And for every one, there's probably 10 that also feel the same way that just, you know, you just you just don't know if, it ha- you know, because they've, they've gone off and, you know, maybe don't live in the area anymore. But that's, sure. oh, that's so amazing. Oh, cool. <laughs> and there are so many other ways that, you know, these these kiddos can, can grow up to be, you know, museum donors and patrons and bring their families, you know, they don't necessarily have to just work for a museum to know that you've had some kind of impact on them. Yeah. 
make the the next generation of museum lovers and museum supporters because yes definitely most museums are are not for profit they are nonprofit 501c3 organizations who rely on donors <laughs> yeah visitors are certainly the, the bread and butter of a lot of museums yes <laughs> So what are some of the current challenges that your museum faces or that you feel that museums in general face today that you would like people to be more aware of as they are attending museums or maybe as they go and support museums, you know, trying to help solve the, these problems? Yeah, I wish I could say that being a cool living history place absolves us from all the troubles um, that museums in general are facing, but I can certainly think of and speak to several challenges. And I'm going to take the perspective of, you know, museums in general here. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say first that we're struggling with reaching new audiences. And again, that's something I think all museums and nonprofits can relate to, especially reaching audiences whom history has not always been kind to or even systematically erased. So I think as museums as a whole, we have to think about continually growing audiences to both remain relevant, but also financially afloat. I would say another challenge we face is expanding narratives. People really expect to see themselves and their ancestors as part of the stories that we're telling. And this can be challenging when you know few histories beyond those of rich white men have been prioritized and then collected. So researching and piecing together these hidden histories does take time and resources, money certainly being one of them. And in many cases, you not only have to audit existing programs, but you have to create entirely new programs and entirely new exhibits. Okay, finally, I will say that uh, diversifying staff um, is a current challenge. There is a lot of privilege that comes with working for a museum. And I'm the first one to, to acknowledge the privilege that I have in working for a museum because there's a lot of education uh, required. Many jobs re uh, require expensive bachelor's and master's degrees that not everybody's going to have access to. Most frontline museum jobs are minimum wage or even just volunteer positions. And that's not something that every graduate, especially those with huge student loans, can take on. And when you do find full-time positions, many require you to wear multiple hats. And working those long hours may not be realistic or possible for people who are trying to have work-life balance or support families, take care of parents, etc. Absolutely. I think a lot of a lot of people who work for museums or just have any kind of a general knowledge of what goes on behind the curtain in museums, definitely understand and feel all of those challenges for sure. And that goes very, very well into your current position as well. Some of those challenges that you face, is there any insight that you can give that from your current position as the, really the first DEI officer at your museum that would you feel comfortable sharing any insights that you have into some of those or how would you try to solve those problems? Yeah. That's so, a bit of a loaded question. So like, <laughs> okay if you don't want to answer that. Certainly my position has to address all of those issues and more. So really this position of Associate Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion kind of encompasses all those challenges that we talked about and really helps the institution address any matter related to diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion. So the acronym we usually hear is DEAI or some kind of arrangement of those letters. And in that, you know, we, we look at these challenges with every single department, with senior leadership and, and our CEO. So I really work on advising and supporting and then implementing strategies that address those issues. And of course, it's not just a one-person job. So this is done 
with the support of a cross-departmental DEAI working group, which I do facilitate. And we meet regularly to identify needs, like I just mentioned, and connecting those needs with resources. So sometimes the work is internally focused, like updating policy, certainly arranging staff trainings and fun cultural activities too. But there are those outward facing duties, like creating public statements, communicating how we're we're doing on those DAI goals that we collectively set and are hoping to accomplish and inform the public of how our institution is, is changing. I'm really big into building community partnerships and outreach. And that's where we really kind of cultivate and then grow those new audiences. And so in community partnership building, you know, you're, you're not only looking at new programming partners, you're also looking at attracting new audiences, specifically those who may have not felt previously welcomed at a site like mine, and you identify barriers and then solutions. That's awesome to, you're really, you know, on the ground trying to, you know, overcome those challenges and reach new audiences and keep museums <laughs> not just talking about the past, but also being open to the future. Because I think a lot of times at at History Museums, we're focused on the past so much, but it's the museum is here for the public and the public is in the present. And we have to think about the future as well, especially when we're talking to those those kiddos. And we want to make sure that everyone does feel welcome at museums and gets to hear honest history, true history and inclusive history you know, that doesn't sugarcoat some of the really terrible things that have happened in the past. So to, you know, be honest and and open to conversations is a huge, huge deal that, you know, it's wonderful to hear how just museums in general, not just yours, but just all of them in general are trying to implement things like you were just talking about. (laughs) It's a delicate balance. Uh, You know, when you go to specifically living history sites with the expectation that, you know, you're having an immersive, fun day, um, learning about history and and experiencing the past, you know, there is a lot of people who come for the nostalgia of it all. They want to think about the good old times. And it can be sometimes challenging for guests when you are confronted with the harder parts of history, especially when you're trying to have a fun kind of escape into the past. But I think it's really important, as you said, to consider the complete history and the full story by making sure that everybody and everybody's history is represented. Absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about what you're currently doing. So are there any really exciting upcoming projects or exhibits or programs that you're working on that you can tell us about? Sure. So December for us and for many museums, I'm sure, means buckling down for a month of holiday programming. So I've been working really closely with our special events and education department specifically to revamp our winter programming through a multicultural lens. So our cherished Yuletide in the Country theatrical tours, which explore various holiday traditions brought to the region by 19th century settlers, um, will have three new scenes, including a French Noel scene, as well as this two-part scene, that will highlight the life of a mid-19th century Black Rochesterian, Mr. Jacob Morris, who was this renowned barber, party planner, and underground railroad conductor, which really speaks to the new research that our site is doing. I think it's also a great opportunity to discuss what it's like to have to work during the holidays, you know, making others merry while your own family has to wait to celebrate, which I think a lot of people will relate to. Um, as far as the Home for the Holiday School field trips, It's also getting that same multicultural revamp, and we're actually introducing Chinese New Year for the first time. I'm the one who will be researching and then delivering this program, and I'm super excited to bring another wintertime holiday to the lineup, 
which happens to connect to my heritage. And I know will also for some of the students that we'll see coming through the village. As far as uh, the rest of 2024, we're in planning phase now. So you can keep an eye out on Genesee Country Villages and Museums website for a full 2024 event calendar. All the returning favorites, of course, but new programs as well, like the Solar Spectacle, which is going to be a four-day festival and viewing party as we are actually in the path of totality for the big solar eclipse in April. As for exhibitions, I heard a rumor that you may be speaking with my colleague at the John L. Whaley Gallery. And I know that he has a lot of exciting news to share. That's so exciting. So everyone will just have to listen to the next episode of Then Again to hear more about what's happening there. And also perhaps a little bit about some historical fashion as well. Ooh, foreshadowing. (laughs) Now, what advice would you have for someone who is interested in pursuing a career in museums? Just you've worked in so many various aspects. I feel like you have a lot to offer on inside about the different facets of museum work. What would you tell somebody who comes to you and says, hey, I absolutely love museums. I love history. What do I do now? How do I get to be you? You know, how how do I get to be any of the various different positions that you've had? First, I would say there's no you know, one size fits all, one path fits all into museums. So I would just start by telling people to ask questions, you know, reach out to people who work in museums and museum adjacent fields and ask any and all of your questions, because you never know where a conversation will lead. I'd say to stay informed, read books, blogs, listen to podcasts, like then again, be prepared to be a lifelong learner and researcher approach everything with curiosity and openness to new experiences. I'd say visit different types of museums, see what you like and maybe what you don't like, and imagine yourself in different museums or different positions and what you think you'd like and what you maybe think you wouldn't like. And then nothing beats hands-on experience. So start by volunteering or even getting a summer or part-time job docenting at a museum. Ask to shadow people maybe do an internship if possible, as again, you just never know where these opportunities will lead. It's one of those things where it, re- it does very much depend on what you know, because you have to have, you know, historical facts and research is very good. But also is one of those situations of where it's also who you know, a lot of times in the museum field and having had an internship or volunteered or having had a part-time job there really does the people get to know you. So you will be notified usually if there is any type of work that becomes available where people could help a lot. Of of course, those job postings are always open to the public as well. (laughs) But I I do know a lot of times, at least here at the History Center, a lot of our people who we have hired on have started as interns. Of course, that's not true for everybody. Some people we just meet and we're like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. Come, you know, join our team. But a lot of times an internship is a wonderful way to get your foot in the door and also learn a whole lot at the same time. Absolutely. There's a lot of small world moments that happen in museums. And I like to think that, you know, the museum field in general is, is, is a small field. But that's not to say that there aren't opportunities and that you just you never know what's out there until you start looking around. We've talked a lot about your work in public history as a profession, but you also do public history as a hobby. You know, it's, it's, I assume at that point, because since it's your job and your hobby, it's your passion in life. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. 
So can you tell us a little bit about more what you do outside of just your day job for public history? Because I think it's amazing. You have this incredible Instagram and blog that I love to follow. And everyone should go follow on Instagram at Sophisticate. And I'll link all of this down in the bio as well. But I would love to hear about how you do public history on the internet, because that is a wonderful way to make history even more accessible to people and just kind of spring up on their phones as they scroll through their feed. So can you tell us a little bit about why you started that, how that is going, and what people could expect to see when they follow? Sure. So as the sophisticate, or sometimes I'm still young sophisticate in places where I haven't quite updated the handles, but I mostly share historical sewing, the uh, sewing process, as well as the historical inspiration behind the pieces as the hopes of being a resource for people hoping to make historical reproduction clothing. Um, I also talk about and share Chinese American history, which is my heritage, and I'm really getting into sharing that part of my heritage and history with others. It's one of those sometimes hidden histories that the field needs more of. I certainly talk about living history practice and then textile arts projects. So I share those all on social media and on a blog. Blog kind of has a bit more um, opportunities for longer research articles and a lot more pictures with accompanying text on Instagram and a Facebook page. You know, you can only put so many pictures and so much text. So those are a bit more updates. And then longer research pieces would go on things like a blog. And again, the, the hope is to be a resource for those specific areas. Um, I do also enjoy creating educational programs and doing fashion history lectures. And that is kind of in accompanying to this online persona. It's just a lot of fun. Do you have a particular era of fashion history that you either enjoy the most or have the most dresses from? I like to say the entire 19th century. But um, as far as having the most dresses from, I certainly have large wardrobes for the eras that Genesee Country Village Museum focuses on. So that would be the early 1800s or the Regency era, as well as mid-century, so 1850s and 1860s. I did some Civil War reenacting, so I do have a lot of 1860s dresses as well. But as far as favorite fashion times, I just want to say the entire 19th century but if I had to, if I had to narrow it down, I would say that I'm really into kind of the 1830s uh, because it's got these really wild and wacky fashions, as well as the second or late bustle period right now, which I, it's just caught my eye. Um, was specifically 1886 when the bustle is at its biggest or widest. Um, <laughs> That is awesome. The 19th century, I, I would probably have to say that's my favorite too. There's just so many wonderful styles and they all fairly nicely fit into kind of a decade and the history that's surrounding it, the social context is all just so fascinating. It's a good decade. You know, it hasn't quite gotten to like the second industrial revolution to where everything's changing insanely fast, but it's changing enough to where it's like, oh, well, that's this decade and that is this and this is because of that. And it, it's so fun. <laughs> What I like to say, you know, when people ask me why historical fashion is just, it is a great lens for exploring all types of history, you know, your social history, your economic history, and of course, it's tied to political history. But then you look at inventions and how that has an impact on fashion and communications. And it's just a fantastic lens to do a complete history through. 
And I also like to tell people that it's great to look at pretty things, but that the hope behind all the sharing is that you're not only looking at just pretty things, but understanding the whys behind what people were wearing. Absolutely. Because it's clothing and fashion is such an expression of a person. So it's you can talk about the person, their personal choices, their individuality, who they are. And it's all kind of represented within a piece of, of clothing that even though the person isn't here with us anymore, but the, the piece of clothing that represents them still is. I was just thinking, well, I'll have to have you back on the podcast. We'll just talk all about 19th century clothing. It'll just Yay. be like a long podcast of 19th century clothing if you're, if you're game for that. I am totally game. I just love historical fashion and it is so hard to pick a favorite decade. And I swear every... Every time I'm asked, it changes based on the projects I'm selling, <laughs> which if you could tell, I'm, I'm currently working on an 1880s <laughs> ensemble, which interestingly enough, I am going to juxtapose Eastern and Western fashion. So I'm creating a Western style 1880s bustle, and I'm going to use the same color palette and fabrics in some cases to do uh, a Chinese ensemble to just juxtapose Eastern and Western fashion of the same decade. So I think that's one of those little cool passion projects and, and research rabbit holes. That is going to be amazing. I can't wait to see all of the photos of that. I'm super excited and just the learning process because I have never previously till now gotten into Hanfu or Chinese historical clothing. So this is a whole new area for me and I hope to do it justice. That is so exciting. And I cannot wait to see all of that on your blog and on Instagram and Facebook and all the social medias because that'll be absolutely amazing. I'm already thinking about like five different podcasts that we could also do with like so many of different <laughs> topics. So, um, <laughs> so to kind of finish out our podcast, lastly, what do you think the future holds for museums, for public history? And how do you see the role of museums evolving in the coming years? And what are your hopes for museums and public history in general for the future? That is quite the question or series of questions, but I really would say that museums are going to have to embrace DEAI as the future. I think people are starting to realize that it's not just a trend, but a necessity to stay relevant and then best serve our public. And I would like to use the letters to explain what I mean here. D stands for diversity, and that's diversity in the staff, programs, and visitors. Like I said, people want more from museums. They want to see themselves in the stories and understand how the museum collections relate to them. So I think it's going to be a lot less about names and dates and more about hands-on and immersive experiences going forward. The E stands for equity, and that's a complete reimagination of museums. Museums, not just as caretakers of collections, but worthy of public trust. Museums are going to be centers of community of learning and play, but also of justice. So we have to be willing to put money and resources into decreasing barriers to access. And A, of course, stands for access or accessibility for us. Um, and that's not just physical accessibility. Living history museums and historical homes are, are not always ADA compliant, but, <laughs> but also the financial access piece. We're going to have to reevaluate pathways into the field, you know, making careers more accessible and affordable especially if we want to attract certain demographics. Then finally, that I or, or inclusion is being museum spaces that are welcoming and value and cherish the history and experiences of all. I think that is a wonderful note to end on as we think about the future and also what we've talked so much about during this podcast 
and hopefully our listeners will really hopefully enjoy that and understand that and will also be advocates in their their own way as they go and go to different museums and support those initiatives. You have any uh, final thoughts for us as we close out this podcast? I'm just very excited to see, you know, the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 50 years of museums and see where we're going to be. We're going to look back on where we are now and think, oh my, what were they doing back then? And, you know, in those five, 10, 20 years, we will be such more inclusive spaces. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I enjoyed our conversation so much and We hope everyone enjoys listening to then again until our next podcast. Take care, everybody, and go check all the links in the bio. Then Again is a production of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Our podcast is edited by media producer Guada Rodriguez. Our digital and on-site programs are made possible by the Ada May Ivester Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.